Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, we again speak with Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center about cutting-edge information on what's happening with the radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Project plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Later on, Kim Roberson of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network lets us know about a new anti-nuclear holiday on April 10, Becquerel Awareness Day. Learn what you can do to join the festivities. These interviews, plus Numbnuts of the Week, and of course, the Radcast Radiation Weather Report with Mimi German, will all be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 8, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. First of all, I want to thank all of you for your support during the two malware attacks on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. The site first went down on Friday, April 4, for about 30 hours. This morning, it went down again. Not up as of my recording this episode, but it will be, with lots more protection in place, I can promise you. In the meantime, I trust that you've accessed this nuclear hot seat on one of its many available platforms, through iTunes, YouTube, or as a direct download from a post on Facebook. This is the era of the Internet, so there are always options. I'll have more to say about this perpetrational attack during my final thought, which is placed, no surprise here, at the end of the program. Now, here's the real anti-nuclear news. We're starting this week with the WIP site, which is still the focus of intense investigation with no answers in sight. The U.S. Department of Energy has postponed plans to get a crew underground to begin investigating the radiation leak at the Carlsbad, New Mexico Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. It's unknown what is leaking or how extensive the contamination might be below ground. Back-to-back incidents at the site. A February 5th fire in a truck underground that caused the site to be closed followed by a Valentine's Day release of radiation that has serious implications, have left many aspects of the permits that govern how WIP operates open to question. The ongoing investigation into the source of the radiation release and the extent of the contamination underground could topple long-held assumptions, experts say. One of those relates to how containers destined for WIP are tested. When the site opened in 1999, nearly every single container headed for the repository was checked for what is called headspace gas, 
the flammable or corrosive chemicals that can build up in the space between the drum contents and lid and threaten a rupture or explosion. State regulators relaxed those rules over time. Now, there are two other risks outlined in WIP's lengthy supplemental environmental impact statement that remain. The possibility of a roof collapse or an exploding drum. Both risks are considered possible causes of the recent leak. This is what we will be discussing at great length with Don Hancock in just a few moments. So when is a radiation plume not a radiation plume? When the media stops covering it, when the government represses it, and when we pay no attention to it. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there. And now there is a government model that shows that airborne radioactivity in a plume covered the entire west coast of the United States and Canada on March 22, 2011, only 11 days after the Fukushima Daiichi accident. The radiation level in some plumes had no discernible decrease after crossing the Pacific, and there was 10 times more radiation than the plume coming from the Fukushima plant on the same day. In other words, we were getting hammered worse than Japan was on that day. This model was developed by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, NOAA, to follow the transport and dispersion of pollutants in the atmosphere. A large number of pollutant particles, which by convention are called particles, but are just computational points, that's just a fine point for the mathematicians in the group, but it showed that these particles were released at the source location and passively follow the wind. On March 11 of 2011, by 4.36 in the afternoon, a nuclear emergency was reported. By the early hours of March 12, radioactive emissions were occurring. The simulation from NOAA's model shows a continuous release of tracer particles from the 12th through the 31st of March at a rate of 100 per hour, and these represent cesium-137 emitted from Fukushima Daiichi. Particles with the highest radioactivity were released around March 15. Then on March 22nd, the NOAA model shows the west coast of the U.S. and Canada covered in red particles, while the Fukushima site and all of Japan are under orange particles. This is a coding used on the map And according to the NOAA, the change in particle color represents a decrease in radioactivity by a factor of 10. Or flipping that around, that 10 times more radiation was hitting the U.S. West Coast than was hitting Fukushima at that time. Renowned and revered anti-nuclear activist Dr. Helen Caldicott, sometimes referred to at least by me as the goddess Athena for her warrior spirit, said that in Japan things are grim. It actually gets worse by the day. She recounted, there have been three meltdowns, which is just unheard of in the history of the nuclear age. Units 1, 2, and 3. So that means the molten cores of about 100 tons of uranium in three reactors have melted their way through six inches of steel in the reactor vessel, through the containment floors, possibly through feet of concrete and steel, into the earth. She went on, a more realistic estimate of contamination is 60,000 square kilometers 
occupied by 46 million people, including parts of Tokyo and surroundings. The whole landmass is contaminated to a greater or lesser extent. More of the hard truths about Fukushima keep coming out. Robert Alvarez, senior energy department official on nuclear issues from 1993 to 1999, said, I think that the jury as to the exact amount of radiation that was released in the air and the water is still out. But over time, the amount of the radioactive materials released into the air was, I would say, roughly in the ballpark of the Chernobyl accident. He went on to say, A short-lived radioactive isotope called xenon-133, which is very radioactive, was found to be 400,000 times normal in the city of Chiba for eight days. People were likely to be heavily exposed from just the short-lived isotopes, so they were getting a yearly dose in about ten minutes. Foreign reporters who are nowhere near as gagged on the topic of Fukushima and the other radiation leaks around the world, have reported finding radiation levels over 100 times the legal limit off the shore in Fukushima. Ararang News, which is out of South Korea, reports that exclusive coverage by the Jungang Ilbo, which is another Korean publication, that their exclusive coverage on the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant has a headline that reads, where Abe said contaminated water was contained, radiation detector goes off beep, beep, beep. The story goes on to state that the radiation detector showed a reading that was 110 times higher than the normal rate. This was surprising, given that the area is within the zone that Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe baby the man who's so in love with the thought of the Tokyo Olympics that he's willing to sacrifice his country's future and the genetic future of the children of Japan in order to keep that in place. Abe Baby had claimed that this area was safe from the effects of radiation. Uh-uh-uh, Shinzo. It's never nice to fool with foreign journalists, especially Korea that doesn't care anything about covering your ass. A team of reporters from Junang Ilbo and JTBC visited the Fukushima site last month to witness for themselves the state of the plant 36 months after the accident began. Their boat came to within just 100 meters, meaning 328 feet, of its port before a deep sense of dread set in. The reporters believed they would be safer from radiation exposure in the open sea, Tell that to the sailors of the USS Ronald Reagan. What they found was that the upper part of the outer wall that covers the number three reactor was crumbling. When the team finally worked up enough courage to come closer to the port, the interval of the beeps from the radiation monitor rapidly increased as the boat passed alongside one of the levees, signaling danger. The detector sounded relentlessly indicating a radiation level of 21 microsieverts, about 110 times the permissible level of exposure. And there's no telling who actually gave permission for that, some numbnuts. As the team moved another 200 meters east, they could see that the port was not fully closed off, and a 50-meter-wide opening let water freely escape. 
The ocean in front of the Daiichi power plant was once one of the richest fisheries in Fukushima Prefecture. But Yoshio Yoshida, the boat's 61-year-old captain, added, We can't do anything about it because the spillover of groundwater mixed with contaminated water isn't going to end in a year or two. It may last until the end of the Earth. Other recent reports state radiation levels at the plant boundaries are at least eight times the legal limit, which is an artifact of imagination anyway. Let's just say it's bad and to be avoided if at all possible. A study in the journal Ecology and Evolution reports on a new study that finds deformities significantly higher in Fukushima insects. A death rate of the young were found to be 10 times higher than other areas in Japan. One of the researchers said, To my knowledge, such deformities haven't been reported in the species before. The lower half of the body split in half with two tail-like appendages and urgently called for further investigations. This is the canary in the coal mine because insects reproduce on a very fast cycle, so any mutations that are going to show up will show up in them before the longer gestation period for this kind of damage shows up in mammals, such as humans. The United Nations World Meteorological Organization received a request from the UN's Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, or UNSCIR, to assist them with the meteorological aspects of dose assessment from the releases from Fukushima Daiichi. This happened immediately after the accident began. On March 15, an explosion was heard just after 6.14 in the morning. After that, the radiation level was reported to exceed the legal limit, and TEPCO started to evacuate all non-essential workers from the plant. Soon after, radiation-equivalent dose rates had risen to 8.2 microsieverts per hour, and three hours after the explosion, the rates had risen to 11.9 microsieverts per hour. But Japanese nuclear authorities emphasized that the containment had not been breached as a result of the explosion and contained no obvious holes. Couldn't get close enough to figure that out if they tried. In a news conference on March 15, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Yukia Amano, said that there was a possibility of core damage at Unit 2, but it was less than 5%. On March 27, TEPCO reported measurements of over 1,000 millisieverts per hour in the basement of the Unit 2 turbine building, which is 10 million times higher than what should be found. However, TEPCO retracted the report. This is the way they sweep it under the carpet. And TEPCO went on to state that the figures were not credible. No, TEPCO, it's you that's not credible. Following the ensuing wave of media retractions that discredited the report worldwide, so easy to orchestrate with our corporatized medium, TEPCO said more than 1,000 millisieverts per hour was recorded. But the concentration of radioactive substances was only 100,000 times higher than usual, not 10 million. Oh my, doesn't that make you just feel better? 
So while the United Nations World Meteorological Organization was actually getting some solid facts and figures around Fukushima, we have, on the other hand, another aspect of the United Nations, which is this week's nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, numbnuts of the week. This is evil numbnuts and liar, 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 liars. I am speaking, of course, of the United Nations Scientific, put that in quotes, committee on the effects of atomic radiation, or UNSCARE, which has an anagram of unscare, meaning it's trying to keep you calm. According to a new 300-page report issued by UNSCIR, the agency did not expect significant changes, there's that word again, significant changes in future cancer rates that could be attributed to radiation exposure from the Fukushima Daiichi reactor meltdowns. Oh, give it a rest. Who do you think you're fooling? The amounts of radioactive substances such as iodine-131 released after the 2011 accident, according to them, were much lower than Chernobyl, which, by the way, the United Nations World Health Organization didn't even bother checking on until five years after the accident happened. Now, here's a real rips in order. This report says that one of the reasons that it's not going to have an impact on people is, I want to gag saying these words, Japanese authorities took action to protect people living near the stricken plant, including evacuations. No potassium iodide. They didn't get the people out. People were stuck. God, I can't even go on about that. These heinous perpetrational liars went on to say some children, estimated at fewer than 1,000, might have received doses that could affect the risk of developing thyroid cancer later in life. Excuse me, we've got 75 confirmed cases now. We've got Masao Yoshida, who died of esophageal cancer. And whatever happened to that reporter who is seen chowing down on Fukushima food within three months of the accident and later had cancer of the larynx and disappeared off the air? Have we ever followed up with him? Have we ever heard what happened to him? There are liars. There are damn liars. There are statisticians. And then there are the United Nations radiation cover-up specialists. How can they live in their own skins? Unskier chair Carl Magnus Larson said that there was a theoretical increased risk among the most exposed children as regards to this type of cancer, which is a rare disease among the young. But he actually said this. We are not sure that this is going to be something that will be captured in the thyroid cancer statistics in the future. Right, they won't be captured because you won't be reporting on it. You won't be looking for it. And if you find something by accident, you will cover it up. We know your modus operandi. They concluded this piece of feces article by saying, No discernible changes in future cancer rates and hereditary diseases are expected due to exposure to radiation as a result of the Fukushima nuclear accident. This is what Unskir said in a statement accompanying its nearly 300-page study. They had the money, the resources, and the people on the dole. 80 scientists who worked on that report. 300 pages to which I reply with three words. Radiation causes cancer. And another three words. 
you are heinous. There are other words too, so many, but let's leave it at that. And there will be no musical tag coming out from this because this is not funny. This is war on the truth being waged internationally so that newspapers and media and governments can all say, well, the United Nations say that nobody's going to get sick with cancer because of Fukushima, not noticing the fact that it has already happened. And that's why evil numbnuts of the week, possibly evil numbnuts of the year, goes to the United Nations quote-unquote scientific committee on the effects of radiation or UNSCIR. Assholes. And to continue with the pro-nuclear happy talk denial, Fukushima schools are reopening because the evacuation advisory has been lifted. Two elementary schools and one junior high school reopened on Monday, April 7th in the Miyakoji district of this northeastern Japan city, meaning Fukushima, after an evacuation advisory related to the country's nuclear disaster was lifted earlier this month. Love the way that bureaucracy covers their asses. Most of the students who had been studying at substitute school buildings returned to their old schools three years after the district's residents were urged to evacuate due to fears of exposure to radioactive materials leaking from the nearby Fukushima nuclear plant. This makes it sound like the fears were misplaced. No, they were real. They were really, really real. So this advisory came out with no additional cleanup, nothing necessary. Just a conscienceless, sociopathic bureaucrat making an announcement. So easy. And in that vein, the UK's tabloid newspaper, The Sunday Mirror, has been campaigning for the survivors of Britain's nuclear tests. 2,200 men ordered to watch as the toxic bombs exploded. Today, most of these men are dead, having been denied justice by successive governments that ignored their health problems. But their legacy lives on in the genes of descendants who suffer 10 times the normal rate of birth defects. We're dealing with generational genetic damage and mutations. Yes, this is a tabloid paper, but they're doing something powerful and good. And when the website's up, I promise I will have a link to it. You can check it out at themirror.co.uk. One bright spot in the week's news Morningstar cites political opposition as one of the reasons that new-build nuclear in the West is dead. Woohoo! Nuclear reactors are not a viable source of new power in the West, according to Morningstar financial analysts. This was what they concluded in a report this month to institutional investors, people with big bucks to invest. Nuclear's, quote, enormous costs, political and popular opposition, that would be us in part, and regulatory uncertainty render new reactors infeasible even in regions where they, according to this study, make economic sense. No, they never do. They never make economic sense. But this view puts Morningstar on the same page as former Exelon CEO John Rowe, who said in early 2012 that new nuclear plants, quote, don't make any sense right now, quote, and won't become economically viable for the foreseeable future. At least a half-life of 24,000 years, please. The Morningstar analysts call the nuclear renaissance a fiction and a fantasy, at least in the West. 
What's even more remarkable is that this is cited in an article coming from Forbes.com, and Steve Forbes has been, I don't know if he still is, but he has been deeply invested in nuclear. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is funded by donations. So if you wish to help, no amount is too small. I'll take the equivalent of a cup of Starbucks coffee. If you wish to donate, I was going to say, go to NuclearHotSeat.com on the homepage and click on the big red donate button just down off the first screen, which you'll be able to do as soon as we are back up and running. I'll be announcing our progress on the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. Now to this week's featured interview with someone who we're going to have to call a special correspondent because he's on the program so often these days. Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center has been a steady, reliable source for frontline information about the radiation leak at the WIP site and where we currently stand. Note that when Don refers to the group CMERC, he means the Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center. Don, when last we spoke, there were workers set to go underground to set up a base camp at the WIP site to determine what was going on there, or at least begin the process of it. Bring us up to date on what has happened since that time. On April 2nd, uh, two sets of workers, each two teams, each of eight workers, went underground to check things out in the north part of the mine area that's not supposed to be contaminated um, and to make sure that workers could go in and out of both the salt shaft and the air intake shaft. So that happened on April 2nd. That was successful. On April 4th then, a second set of workers went down and went about 1,600 feet south in the mine toward where the contamination is going to be to establish what you talked about, the base camp, uh, closer to where they expect to find contamination. So to not bury people in numbers, they've gotten 1,600 feet into the mine, going south in the mine. The area where they expect to find contamination uh, is at 2,180 feet. So their base camp is about 580 feet or more or less from where they expect to find contamination. So the next, what they're calling phase three, the next phase will be to send workers underground to go this additional 580 feet, more or less, and then farther, depending on the level of contamination they find and whether they think their protective gear is sufficient to protect them as they, you know, go into the area where there's both contamination and where they want to try to look to see what they can see about what caused the contamination and more exactly where the contamination originated from. Has any contamination been found yet that you know of in the search that's been going on underground? They say no. I would expect that would also be the case unless the system, the underground system sort of totally failed because they have stayed away and they should have. So I'm glad they're doing it the way they're doing it in slow and in stages. They're, They're staying away so far from areas that they, I, and other people will expect to find contamination. And and the reason we say where we expect to find contamination, we know where the 
continuous air monitor that alarmed because of a radiation alarm after 11 p.m. on February 14th. We know where that air monitor was and still is. We know how the air flow system in the mine is supposed to work. And so assuming things are working more or less correctly, the areas that the workers so far have been in are areas where the air is coming in from the outside, going toward the area where there is waste and, you know, where they'll find contamination, et cetera. So the only reason they should have found contamination in the areas they've gone is if the outside air that's being pulled in is contaminated, which it shouldn't be and isn't supposed to be, or if the system in the underground worked incorrectly and the underground air was allowing was circulating air in ways that it should not have been. Any progress in getting readings from the EPA on what has been dispersed in the air, what is showing up in the soil, any word on their understanding of the amount of contamination that has taken place? No, uh, is the short, direct answer. Um, EPA has people on site this week they are supposed to be bringing some mobile air monitors that they're going to set up. So they're going to start doing some monitoring this week. It will take a while. They haven't said how long to get results from the sampling they're doing. But no, the answer is we do not have any. We have no data so far from EPA. So we're still left with the data that we have about the release are from the Department of Energy and the Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center. So there hasn't been any change in that from last week? CMERC released some additional data today on their air monitoring, which is pretty consistent with what they've been finding for the previous weeks in terms of both what's coming out of the underground into the exhaust shaft area and what they're finding in their air monitors on the surface. I did ask CMERC today if they knew when they would start having results from the soil sampling that they're doing, and the response was they're still working on it, so they still don't know when they'll have soil sampling results. They have taken soil samples. And the New Mexico Environment Department has taken soil samples in addition to the sampling that DOE has done. But neither CMERC nor the Environment Department have gotten any laboratory results back on their soil sampling. So right now the only soil sampling we have is um, a few samples that the Department of Energy did that date back to February in which they said they found nothing. Unfortunately, the Department of Energy also said they found nothing when, in fact, there were 21 workers contaminated. So, unfortunately, the reliability of DOE's data is not good at this point. One of the things you said last week that has been, that has gone through kind of a linguistic twist was that there was a suspicion that the releases were continuing 24-7. And that got translated out as the release has been continuous since it started on the 14th. If that is not accurate, could you give us a course correction on our understanding of it? 
the data show and continue to show, both the Department of Energy data and the CMERC data, continue to show very small amounts, but detectable amounts of americium and most of the time plutonium-239 in the air that's coming up from underground. So there is more radiation in the air today as we speak coming from the underground than there was at any point before February 14th. That's just a factual statement based on the data. Now, that should not be interpreted, and I don't believe I said last week that that means that the radiation continues to be released on the order of magnitude or on the scale that it was released early on. But the reason that the workers going underground have to wear protective equipment is that they are going to get to places where there will be small amounts of radiation in the air and presumably much larger amounts of, nobody knows how much, but larger amounts of contamination in the salt in the floor, ceilings, and walls of the area they're going. But there is some radioactivity in the air that they would be breathing in in the underground. Again, not any ways near a thousand times less or maybe even less than that of what the initial release was. But the air, the underground air is not clean, is not free of radiation. So that's not saying that the containers in the underground are continuing to release, although that might be happening on very small scale. But more what that means is that there's enough radioactivity in the underground that even just the normal air filtration system moves some amount, small amounts of radiation americium-241 and plutonium-239 and 240 in the air just from the normal air circulation. Let's take a look now at what's actually happening to the low-level waste now that it can't be put into the WIP site because it's still being manufactured all over the country and it's got to go somewhere, so it's being shipped up to Texas. Can you tell us what you know about that changeover and the implications of it? Let me say a couple of things about your introduction. WIP has about 90,000 cubic meters of transuranic waste in the underground. This is there already. This is what's already at WIP that was put there in the almost 15 years from when it opened March 26, 1999, up until... They couldn't put any more in the underground as of February 5th when the fire and the salt hauling truck happened that we've talked about before. There is more. There is around 60,000 cubic meters more transuranic waste that's sitting, being stored at various Department of Energy sites around the country. So that's different than those sites all still making more transuranic waste, they're cleaning up what they have. The site that is kind of the exception to that is the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, which is continuing to do experiments with and manufacture plutonium for pits for nuclear bombs. And so Los Alamos is creating a few hundred to a few thousand containers more of transuranic waste every year. 
but most of the sites that are sending transuranic waste to WIP are sending what's called legacy waste, waste that was created in most cases 20 years or more ago and has been stored at those locations. So that's just just so your listeners understand kind of the difference between still cleaning up stuff that's been there for a long time and the fact that there is some new being created primarily at Los Alamos. And the reason to talk about Los Alamos is that's the reason that Waste Control Specialist, which is a low-level waste disposal site primarily for commercial waste from commercial nuclear power plants, goes to Waste Control Specialist. This is a facility near Andrews, Texas, but it's physically almost more in New Mexico than in Texas. In other words, the boundary of WCS is the state of Texas-New Mexico line. So WCS has been operating for a number of years for low-level waste, not for transuranic waste, not for the kind of waste going to WIP. But it has the capability, the facility, the operators of the of WCS have always wanted to make money, of course, and so more waste means more money. So they've been willing, actually, from even before WIP opened, to take transuranic waste to leave on the surface until it can go to WIP. But up until now, up until last week, it didn't have any of the transuranic waste because the transuranic waste had always gone directly to WIP. Los Alamos National Lab, the site that I mentioned that has a lot of waste that's been there for a while and then is generating more waste, signed an agreement, a non-binding agreement, with the state of New Mexico more than two years ago saying that 3,706 cubic meters of transuranic waste that was at Los Alamos would be moved out of Los Alamos to WIP by June 30, 2014. So more than 3,000 cubic meters of that 3,700 has been moved out, but there was 546 cubic meters left at Los Alamos that was supposed to be going to WIP between mid-February and June 30th so that all so that this agreement would be complied with. Now, of course, it couldn't start going. Middle of February, WIP was not open. They couldn't start sending. Middle of March came. They still couldn't start sending. So in the meantime, Los Alamos was concerned about, and the New Mexico Environment Department, the state of New Mexico agency that signed this agreement with Los Alamos, were concerned about Los Alamos was going to miss this June 30th deadline for these hundred or so truckloads of waste that's supposed to be out of Los Alamos by June 30th. So what they came up with is to pay waste control specialists a reported $8.8 million to take these hundred or so truckloads of waste and leave them in a building at waste control specialists. The building is supposed to be monitored 24-7 by closed-circuit TV and physically inspected by both waste control specialist workers and WIP workers to make sure that everything is okay. And the hope of the Department of Energy is that the 100 shipments or so from Los Alamos will be going. Last week there was five, but this week and going forward they hope to be doing about 10 a week so that by June 30th this waste from Los Alamos will be at waste control specialists where it supposedly can stay for a year until it can go to WIP. So the last thing I want to say about that is 
moving this waste from Los Alamos doesn't, in fact, mean that all the waste at Los Alamos has been cleaned up for two reasons. There's still more waste at Los Alamos that's buried underground from a few feet deep up to about 25 feet deep in the ground at Los Alamos that should also be pulled out, in my view. And in addition, as we've talked about, Los Alamos continues to make more transuranic waste and plans to continue to make more transuranic waste for the foreseeable future as part of the United States nuclear weapons production program. In your estimation, how safe is the storage that's taking place at the WCS site in Texas? It should be approximately as safe there as any place else that it would be sitting in buildings, whether that's at Los Alamos or at WCS or even at WIP, given the monitoring, et cetera. The only caveat or the main caveat I have to that is we still do not know what caused the radiation release at WIP. One possibility, and again, we don't know what happened, one possibility is some containers in the underground at WIP had explosive or flammable or chemically active waste that are not supposed to be at WIP, but one scenario is that some materials that were not supposed to come to WIP did come to WIP and cause some of this release. Now, without knowing for sure that that didn't happen, and if it did happen, not knowing whether it was from Los Alamos or Idaho or Savannah River site, which are the three sites that most recently have shipped waste to WIP, we don't know absolutely that there are 19 shipments that are on the surface at WIP waiting to go underground, and there are these up to 100 or 120 shipments from Los Alamos that are supposed to go to waste control specialists. So if if the shipments going to waste control specialists are proper shipments for WIP to leave them on the surface in an enclosed building inspected with 24-hour closed-circuit monitoring should be you know, as safe, as I say, as if it were at Los Alamos or at WIP. If there are problems with the waste in any of those containers, though, then, you know, they're not safe to be on the surface at Los Alamos or WCS or WIP. So we just don't know. And it's all relative as to what safety means under these circumstances. That, of course, is correct. And, you know, safety is certainly a relative term. And the problem we have, as we've talked about a lot, is because there's so much important information that we don't know about what happened at WIP. Therefore, that should make everybody less certain that they know how safe the waste containers are in other locations as well as at WIP until we know better what actually happened. Anything you want to add that we haven't covered? I guess the other thing I would mention is this morning in Washington, D.C., David Heizinga, who's the head of the Department of Energy's Environmental Management Program, so essentially the top boss other than the Secretary of Energy for what goes on at WIP, was testifying before the House of Representatives Appropriations Subcommittee that deals with funding for DOE and these DOE sites that have waste. Not surprisingly, he was asked a number of questions by the Congress people about WIP. 
including what caused the release, and he said he didn't know. When were they going to get into the underground? And he said, well, I mean, to get to the contaminated area. And he said, well, he hoped this week or next week. Uh, how long was it going to, WIP was going to be closed? He didn't know how much extra money it was going to cost because, of course, the Congress is concerned about what additional money they will have to appropriate or take away from other places in order to pay for what's going on at WIP. And he said he didn't know. Um, so there seems to be a pattern here so well it is a pattern and on the one hand it's very bad that more than seven weeks after this incident the department of energy including their top people both at whip and in washington dc still don't know any of the fundamental issues that they should know so that should be a cause of concern on the other hand, I'm glad that he didn't start saying, acting as if he did know, because one of the problems, of course, early on, on February 14th, 15th, and 16th, for example, is the folks at WIP were making definitive statements about there was no contamination, no worker contamination, no building or equipment contamination, et cetera. So they've made a number, and since then they made some other statements that were not, in fact, factually correct. So I've tried to encourage the Department of Energy and other folks to not make factually incorrect statements or draw conclusions that really are not supportable. So on the one hand, I'm glad that the head guy of DOE in Washington wasn't making some erroneous statements like some other people in DOE have made in the past. But again, the point that I'm making, you're making, and the point that members of Congress who are responsible for appropriating money for WIP and other facilities were less than pleased about the fact that so much information isn't known. And so they said pretty sternly and repeatedly, you know, as you find out things, you need to let us know what's going on. Don, we appreciate the clarity of your information and the up-to-date nature of it. And we here at Nuclear Hot Seat will continue to be in touch with you. Thank you very much. Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center. We will be hearing more from Don in the coming weeks. So if you want to support me with Nuclear Hot Seat and can't get on the website to give a donation, this would be a perfect time for you to go to Amazon and download my ebook, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. There's a sample chapter on that site in case you want to read it. And know that you can have your very own digital copy for about the cost of a cup of Starbucks. We seem to be in a Starbucks economy these days. Amazon Kindle does provide free software for you to be able to read their ebooks on all digital platforms. So not having a Kindle isn't an excuse. I think you'll enjoy the read and you'll learn probably more than you would ever want to know about me. TMI on TMI. The Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAN, is urging the public to participate in a national call into action day this coming Thursday, April 10th. Kim Roberson, founder of FAN, explains it all for Nuclear Hot Seat listeners. Kim, tell us what we can expect in this new holiday within our movement, Becquerel Awareness Day. Becquerel Awareness Day, or BAD, B-A-D because radiation is bad to eat. Thursday, April 10th, is indeed Becquerel Awareness Day. And to commemorate, FAN is asking everyone to speak truth to power 
by calling your elected representatives in Washington, D.C. We are demanding that action be taken to significantly lower the current allowable levels of cesium-134 and 137 in food, nutritional supplements, and pharmaceuticals. This has been stated in FAN's citizen petition filed with the FDA over one year ago. This is a national call-into-action day to underscore Fukushima's impact on food in the U.S. and its potential to harm all of us, but especially vulnerable children and pregnant women. There is a Facebook page with quite a bit of information posted to help people through this process, including links to representatives with their phone numbers and talking points. And a basic script will be posted on Wednesday in preparation for Thursday's call-in event. There is also a Facebook event page to RSVP and, most importantly, to invite others to join us. We really need your help. All of this information is accessible at www.ffan.us. Kimberly Roberson, founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. I, for one, plan to be calling my senators and representative on Thursday to tell them that being in Congress does not grant immunity from the deadly impact of radiation and that the United States' insanely high level of permissible, not by me, but permissible radiation in food, which is 12 times higher than what is allowed in Japan, impacts their health and the health of their families as well. So let's all mark our calendars, have the phone numbers ready, and give our elective representatives a piece of our collective minds. Now here's Mimi Gurman with the Radcast Radiation Weather Report. This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, April 8, 2014. Last week on Nuclear Hot Seat, we were seeing fluctuations in readings across the U.S., but for many days this week, we are seeing much higher readings than normal. When you hear me say that the readings are up, what I'm saying is that they are up incrementally. If we go from 32 counts per minute to 39, and the higher of those readings stays for a day or so, we need to take notice. It means that we're seeing higher levels of radiation being detected by our Geiger counters. The patterns are what we see on most days across the country. We call these our background averages. These are patterns. Trends would be when those background readings go up, especially in more than one area in the country. These are the kinds of things we look for to give us a broader picture of what's coming in from either Japan or from WIP or from any nuclear plant in the country or on the planet. Portland, Oregon, usually a 30 to 32 counts per minute average went up first to 35 and stayed there for a few days and then rose to 39 for one more day. We saw that the same thing was going on in Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, from Japan to the west coast of the United States to the east coast of the United States. And by the way, folks, We would know more if we could get more listeners to purchase meters and hook into our maps. We really do need you to put the radiation picture together. New Mexico is still having a rise in radiation, most likely from the Waste Isolation Pilot Project or WIP. 
In Silver City, New Mexico, we've got averages in the low 60s. And in Artesia, New Mexico, we see readings today of 46 counts per minute with a high of 78. We've seen in photos and on the Fukushima cams that Building 2 was putting out a lot of steam over the last week and before that. That's probably what we're seeing coming in across the ocean onto our shores. Before reading the other counts to you, we'd like to thank our new citizen readers on our new Radcast map. Thank you so much for contributing. In readings today on the Radcast report, Northampton, Massachusetts has an average of 40 counts per minute. Notice, folks, how many 40 counts we have today. It's 40 in Northampton, 42 in Salisbury, Massachusetts, 42 in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Oneonta, New York is 33. Ithaca, New York, back to 40. And moving across, we've got readings in St. Paul, Minnesota, which are 42 counts per minute. Farmington, Minnesota is 38 counts per minute. Shoreville, Minnesota, 41. Billings, Montana, 37. Billings, Montana, by the way, folks, has been on the rise recently. Evergreen, Colorado, 66 counts per minute on average with a high of 98. Rapid City, South Dakota, 48 and a high of 76. Diablo Canyon, California, 38. That's a kind of a low number for them. I'm glad to see that number. Fresno, California is 43. Hanford, Washington, 32. Now we're into the Northwest with Bellingham at 32. Tenino, Washington, 33. And Seattle at 33. North Vancouver, BC is 41. Victoria, BC, 24. And all the way over in Taiwan, we have an average of 45 and a high of 80 counts per minute. Thank you for listening to the Radcast Report. This is Mimi German for Radcast.org. Here's today's final thought. Well, if I had any doubts about the impact and effectiveness of nuclear hot seat, they are long gone. Clearly, my work on this program is effective, because if it weren't, the trolls wouldn't have bothered with me. In talking with my colleagues within our movement, we all believe that the information that caused them to take the website down is related to the radiological releases at the website. A lot of government hush-hush and billionaires involved with that story. Perfect grounds for macho thugs beating their chests and pushing the testosterone level in defense of the indefensible. So what? They pick on a 64-year-old semi-retiree with a bad back and depleted adrenals? Very white of them. Now here's the thing. Nuclear is crumbling. The technology, corners cut in construction, the lies, the image of the entire industry, the delays in capturing data so they can have planned deniability. It's all coming out like the pieces of broom in the Sorcerer's Apprentice that turned into these wildly destructive little beings. The harder they swat to push us down, the more the lies keep getting exposed. Now, I've been contradicting those lies since I began producing Nuclear Hot Seat almost three years ago. Sometimes I wondered if anyone was even paying attention. Many times I almost stopped, but something kept me going. And now, I can't not do it. 
There are too many stories, too many lives at stake, too much information that the mainstream media news is not getting out. Why am I the only reporter outside of the immediate Carlsbad, New Mexico area who's covering WIP on a weekly basis? This makes no sense. But it's the way our world is now. Ignorance, image, and slogans triumph over intelligence. I just had a Facebook fight with a business mentor of mine because he was glowing about the sushi meal he just had, and I was challenging his understanding of the problems with eating Pacific fish from a post-Fukushima ocean. He considered me a spoil sport. So be it. I've been a contrarian most of my life. I keep looking for ways to make a difference, to harness my many talents, all of them also rams as far as careers go, and make them work for me. With nuclear hot seat, they do. So at this moment, the nuclear hot seat website is down. Big deal. Episodes are stashed all over the place. Nothing has been lost except a little bit of time. And in the process, I've learned some valuable lessons. I now delegate certain aspects that I can't do myself. I've been really heartened by the number of you stepping forward with words of support, skill sets of your own, increased donations, they weren't counting on that, and some righteous anger on my behalf. To all of you, I say thank you directly from my heart. As for all you nuclear perps, and you know who you are and you're listening, chuckling to yourself, yuck, 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 you are not immune to the consequences of your actions. Radiation doesn't differentiate between pro-nuke and anti-nuke bodies. It is an equal opportunity destroyer of lives and genetic futures. One day, perhaps before too long, you're going to wake up to realize what you've done, what you've doomed yourselves and your genealogical downline to. And at that moment, you will be hit by a regret that will last for eternity. As for me, I will do what I can, how I can, for as long as I can, because I know that ultimately, that's what's going to work. As Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they make fun of you, then they attack you, then you win. Three down, one to go. And I haven't had this much fun since I filed a report against my sexual abuse perpetrator. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 8, 2014. ENEnews.com, Albuquerque Journal, NextGov.com, New York Times, Telegraph.co.uk, the NOAA, Kyoto News, Dr. Helen Caldicott, Institute for Political Studies, Ararang News, Ecological and Evolution Journal, United Nations World Meteorological Organization, Reuters, GG Press, Forbes.com, TheMirror.com.uk, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Special thanks this week to Sean Arklight and Christine Dillon Strickland for their help in posting last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 145, the takedown episode, which I suggest you all listen to if you haven't already. And a special shout out to Richard Viasana, known as the Mexico Guru, who put the tech whizzes from his companies, MarketingToMexico.com and FindFamiliesInMexico.com, to work on getting my website challenges sorted out and taken care of. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY-TV. Our archives are available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog once it's back up and running. 
Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications, but fair use allowed. You have my permission to reuse for non-professional circumstances as long as you provide proper attribution to me and the website. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. <laughs>